Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Seb Staffordblow. Hi Joe. Hello. Uh, today, Seb and I were joined by Paul and Joe Lake. Seb, who are those people? Paul and Joe Lake um, wrote one of my favourite football books of all time. Um, Paul was a highly promising uh, Manchester City player. He got hurt the very first within a month of the Premier League starting. Um, and he was Manchester City's captain. He was two and a half games into his captaincy and a new five-year contract. And he hurt his knee and it, um, it ended his career. And when they got married, Paul and Joe wrote a, a brilliant account of not just um, his injury and his struggles to overcome it, um, but also his his afterlife, his um, his rebound from that, and his um, his life after football. Uh, it's just absolutely fascinating book. And I anyone who, I've never you know it, it's that rare thing. It's it's a football book that I've never heard anybody say anything bad about. It's universally yeah. loved um, yeah. and rightly so. No, it's very very good. And what was uh, most interesting to me about the podcast that we've just recorded uh, is the discussion about the dynamic between uh, those two people as well, uh, because that you know the the process of of uh, writing uh, a book about you know your husband's life for 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 Joe, who's um, a ghostwriter by trade, is a very interesting and intimate process. So we were curious to dig down into that a little bit more too and find out about how that all happened. Um, but anyway, if you want to dig down more into things and find out how things happen in a good way, yeah, you should uh, subscribe to The Athletic. Uh, and you can do that by visiting theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, where you can get a 30-day free trial to uh, listen uh, to read all of the things at your heart's desire. I'm thinking, of course, Paul uh, is a huge Manchester City legend and fan. Um, and of course, uh, I expect that he'd enjoy the writing of Sam Lee. Don't you think so, Seb? I think so. But more importantly, Joe, I think you need to um, uh, add lib us towards a slight recording anomaly that uh, we experience so that I can explain a character that comes up in uh, in in our conversation. Do you want to do that seamlessly? Yes, I would like to do that. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> Wow, it would have been seamless if you hadn't done that. Uh, anyway, that's theathletic.com forward slash TIFO. Do uh, please go and uh, check out the 30-day free trial. Loads of fantastic stuff to, to fill all of your time. Never have to think about anything. Never ever. Just fill your time with football. Anyway, um, the key piece of information that you might want to hear for later in the podcast is as follows. There is a man named Peter Swales, and Seb, you ask, uh, you ask uh, Paul about him at a certain point without much context. I just wondered if in 10 seconds you can give us the context as to who Peter Swales was and why you're asking Paul. I can indeed, Joe. Peter Swales was the former Manchester City chairman. He was uh, ousted by Francis Lee uh, when he took over the chairmanship. Um, I was trying very hard not to spoil a passage of the book, and in fact, I did it too efficiently. Um, and right. yeah. so, yeah, you were so efficient. I didn't have any idea what you were talking about. Exactly, but there's uh, your context, and uh, yeah, now you can enjoy that 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 five minute segment. Yeah, exactly. Hey, well, listen, Paul and Joe, a remarkable book, a special couple, and lovely podcast. Uh, so we'll now, without further ado, leave you in the uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace of uh, Paul and Joe Lake. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I suppose it makes sense to, to start at the beginning um, and to ask where the idea for the book came from and, and what the motivations were in, in, in putting it together. Um, well, I think we go back to about, it was the summer of 2009. 
and um, Paul and I and the, and the kids, our kids, were on holiday in Northumberland. And I remember one evening, the kids were in bed and we were outside sitting on the veranda, lovely night, watching the sun go down. And we were just chatting and Paul was reminiscing about his career and just various things that were coming to mind. And I just said to him, you know what, you've got such a fantastic story in you. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we, if we could tell it one day, even if it's just for family? Because, it, you know, it is such a unique tale. And then we kind of talked some more. And my background, I'd never written a book before, but I'd, um, I'd worked at Man United and Man City um, in the publications departments. I'd written articles, I'd conducted interviews. So I was, you know, I was fairly, fairly um, up to speed with that kind of thing, but never written a book. And I said to Paul, you know what, maybe we should tackle it ourselves and see how far we get. And if it doesn't work, well, there's probably plenty of other writers that want to take up your story because it is so is so different. Um, so we got back home to Manchester and we started and we kind of approached it really professionally. I mean, obviously I was Paul's wife, but I approached it as a writer and, and it just kind of started from there. And each night we'd put the kids to bed and we would sit in the lounge and Paul would sit on one settee, I'd sit on the other and he would just chat. I would tape and then the next few days, weeks, I would spend just putting it all together basically. And as the weeks went by and as the chapter started to form, I just thought, this is kind of working, it's clicking. And um, then we we sent some of the material over to a few friends of ours. Do you want to take over? Uh, yeah, so we were, we were at a stage where we were, we were quietly obviously happy with with the content and and how we'd um, developed um the the chapters if you will to begin with but then we thought well are we just being overly kind to each other and and we needed to get this sense checked and so on the back of that we decided to send the chapters over to um a, a few friends of ours to get a second opinion and some honest feedback and uh, that that group included uh, people who were obviously uh, in the in the business, albeit to a greater or lesser extent, and the feedback on mass was really, really positive, and 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 so much so that you know it was quite a, quite an exciting time for us. Yeah. So um, one of our friends is a photographer called Kevin Cummins, and we submitted just the first three chapters to him. Just said, "Look, cast your eye over it and tell us what you think." And he happened to, he's written a few books himself. Uh, well, he's a photographer and obviously he's, he's quite prolific in that respect. And he passed it on to his literary agent, who uh, again came back with some fantastic feedback and um, distributed it to various publishers. I mean, we, it was just dreamland for us. As I said before, we were just looking at it as just a family chronicle, maybe something that a local publisher might pick up. But suddenly we've got a literary agent who's sending our little book to the top level publishers in London. You know, it was dream time, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Can I ask, I, I know it's a, it's a really strange question, but Paul, was it, um, when I first wrote the book, um, I reread it over the weekend actually, but when I first re- read the book, it the openness and the honesty really, um, it took me away a little bit because it, it's not really, those aren't really qualities you associate with um, footballers' autobiographies. So was it a difficult thing to, to share not only with your wife but with the knowledge that this was probably going to go out to the world was that a difficult thing to overcome um i suppose i didn't really see it um or think about it in in that context to be honest it was 
it was it was quite I'll be honest it was quite a cathartic process and I mean it's not often that your wife becomes your counsellor but um, it was really interesting because uh, it, it gave me um, it gave me a, a, an avenue in, in which I could I could basically describe um, all of my built up emotions because <clears throat> I had no life experience of of anything other than being in a football bubble and you are cosseted up to a point albeit you know obviously uh, within reason at Master City at, at that particular time but even so um, I didn't really know once I'd been injured and, and, and the amount of uh, upset and heartache and, and, and uh, all the false dawns and the false promises and the, and the lack of support and emotional guidance I was given I had all of this uh, pent up emotion um, inside of me with, with, with nowhere to kind of vent if you will and 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 um it wasn't doing my mental health uh any any good whatsoever so in in point of fact uh the these these sessions uh because obviously it was joanne and i trusted joanne implicitly i was able to really open up and and the more that I spoke the more that i felt that there was there's so many layers to my emotions and so many layers to my troubles and the fact that I'd, I'd not dealt with it and, and, and didn't know how to deal with it, that all these emotions and all of this heartache and hurt and, uh, came out in the, in the book. And, and there was also, um, it was, it was, a it was also born out of speaking with, um, you know, quite a few, um, fans, um, in different, different guises. And it was one particular uh, fan that actually, uh, was angry with me. And, and he, he blamed me for the demise of, of our team because I was regarded as being the next best thing, if you will. And I was, I'd already spoken with the England managers and, and, uh, was, was regarded as being a potential future England captain. Uh, Howard Kendall had made me captain. I had, uh, you know, such an exciting, uh, the, the prospects and the potential was, was, uh, was was uh, was quite an exciting you know uh, uh, time for me, and then he blamed me saying that I didn't work hard enough, I didn't try hard enough, and uh, I should have done more, and uh, that I'd let people down, and you know I'd I'd, I'd worked tirelessly, and and uh, in terms of the rehabilitation and and uh, having to to start again and start again and to try and find some resolve and some resilience to be able to carry on and i couldn't believe i was hearing these things so on the back of that you know having all of that to deal with and 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 once you're in that that mindset you just ruminate and ruminate and and you can't shift these feelings and and all these mixed emotions of of anger and regret and frustration and disappointment kind of, you know, came to the fore. And, and so thankfully speaking to Joanna, I've been able to open up, uh, you know, I was able to, to be in a much, much better place, but also it was the nature of the questions that Joanne was asking. So she doesn't, she won't necessarily say that, but there's a real talent to it because she almost guided me and enabled me to get, to give me that time and that silence just to really speak and uh, I think it was the perfect environment for me to really open up. Before you began this process um, and then there's another moment in the book where you become an outpatient at the um, the Manchester branch of the Priory and you describe a lot of your emotions spilling out with a therapist. Before you reach these stages were a lot of these emotions just rattling around inside of you with nowhere to go? Well again I didn't know 
how to how to deal with this emotion. I, did, I couldn't even describe it, and, and you know they were they were overlapping, you know. So and and you'd, you'd go through sort of stages where just driving along, you you you're thinking about not only what what might have been, but also then the reasons why things didn't work out, and and then you uh, you reflect you you do reflect inwardly around what could I have done and, and should I have been more vocal in terms of getting, you know, second opinions and, and challenging the medical team. But let's be honest, when you're a professional footballer at that particular time, I wouldn't even know what an anterior cruciate ligament was, never mind what the rehabilitation should have been or what consultants should have spoke with or should I have a second opinion? Was I insured? You know, what's the prognosis? Um, what are the time frames? Um, who are the specialists that I should be speaking with? Um, you know, what, what's their experience? You know, what's their success rate? What type of surgery? So you can imagine just on that one level, I was so naive and therefore had to put my trust in other people. And so on the back of that alone, you know, you, you, you think about things and, and you, you get angry with yourself because it was my one one chance to get to get back fit, having the best care and attention possible. But I didn't even know that I wasn't receiving the best advice and best attention. So, you know, therefore, you look back and you're thinking when other people are speaking, you know, did you have an agent? No. Um, did you have um, a medical confidant? No. With anybody else that you could speak with in terms of this type of injury? Well, no. So that alone was, was, was um, uh, you know, just almost torturing yourself in terms of didn't know but should have known. Why didn't I know? You know, and, and all these missed opportunities that you, you ruminate on and you think, well, who else can I, could I have turned to? But ultimately, you feel that, you know, perhaps I was just too naive and too trusting. And, and that then brings on this frustration and this anger, this missed opportunity when this, you know, when this, 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 this period of time in my life where I should have been in control and, and I wasn't. So with the, when I was at the Priory, it was just almost, you know, untangling this spiral of emotion that had just become so intertwined that I didn't know how I felt about anything. And so every emotion um, flared its ugly head in, with, in every situation. Joe, do you mind if I ask, um, how long have you, had you known Paul um, before you got married? Uh, we got married in 2001. I probably met Paul 97. So, yeah, probably about three years before we got married. So were you in a position to to um, to not observe, because that makes him sound like a laboratory rat, but <laughs> were you in a position to, to notice the changes in him during that period? Well, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a City fan from birth almost. So, you know, I followed Paul's career, obviously, years and years and years before I got to him as, as a person. And I followed his, you know, the, the awful career-ending injury that he had, but also the, the high points as well. I was there in the Manchester Derby, the five-one, and saw this this wonderful player. But um, I did, of course, I did. I mean, my, my dad was a huge City fan as well, and he was he was absolutely obsessed with Paul. He just thought he was one of the best young players he'd ever seen, and he would chronicle how this this wonderful player had had so much to offer, had so much promise, and yet his could obviously being so cruelly taken away from him. So when I, I started work at City, I did know Paul um, on, a, on, on a personal level. And also, um, just as he was retiring, I actually um, wrote his testimonial brochure. So I did get a kind of sense of 
the depths that he was he was plumbing at the time. Can I ask at this point? Um, I, I've been, I've seen a psychotherapist for about four or five years, and I remember having a conversation with him the other day, where I acknowledged, and as did he, that I probably share a lot of aspects of my life with him that I don't with um, with my partner, for example, and maybe those are just things that. <clears throat> are, are too small to consider being brought up on a daily basis or are just things that are lost out when you're in part of a, dyna- a dialogue rather than a monologue. But Joe, can I ask, and I suppose this question applies to Paul as well, did you find throughout the process of writing the book, you're obviously learning so much about your husband and Paul, obviously you're sharing so much with your wife. Do, do you prize that experience? Because it's something that probably even people who spend 30, 40 years together might not actually ever sort of delve into those depths just in natural conversation. Do you consider it to be an experience that you're, that you're pleased to have had in that sense? Oh, absolutely. It was an absolutely eye-opening experience for me because while uh, I knew that Paul had been depressed in the past, I had absolutely no idea to the the extent of that depression until we started writing the book. And as Paul said, you know, it was we did it in such a relaxed environment. These writing sessions, these talking sessions were, were often like therapy. And it was absolutely enlightening to me to real and surprising and shocking because I've been married to Paul. But when we started the book, we'd all been married for 10 years. And the, the actual depths to which he plumbed and, and the, the depression that he went through, I had no idea how, how hard he, you know, the, the difficulties that he'd gone through. And can I ask Paul specifically as well, you say in the book, there's a couple of things I want to point out. One is a quote where you say, the willpower required to bottle up my emotions, conceal my symptoms and feign normality left me utterly exhausted. And this is before you started attending therapy. And after you started attending, close to the beginning, you talk about how you were so worried that a City fan or someone at the club might find out that you were in psychotherapy. So you carried a check that you'd scrawled on so that in case someone discovered you, you could pretend that you were on your way to to donate to a charity that was based at the centre. I want to ask about football specifically, maybe sport more broadly. Do you feel that there is or there can be a natural culture within the locker room, for example, that makes sharing those sorts of emotions or those sorts of conversations more difficult? And at the time, do you, or do you think that that would be comparable in wider culture or that's something that maybe can be specifically attributed to, to sports, which has a sort of a hyper goals orientated environment and often can be quite masculine where there's lots of men together? Um, yes, it's a really, really... <clears throat> interesting question because obviously since the days when I for my had to retire to to where we are now uh, I feel like you know kind of if you will player care and and, and all around um, being able to speak about you know uh, mental illness and, and all those types of things have, 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 have changed uh, dramatically however same time, you, you you kind of brushed on on this when you spoke about jo- Joanne and I speaking, uh, you know, uh, in a, a quiet, safe space to talk about, you know, my innermost feelings, and 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 that was difficult to do so, but uh, I felt that I could, and and as we spoke more, and the process became more natural, um, it became really comfortable to be able to do so. In a changing room, you've got you've got a couple of things. You've got you've got players that are obsessed 
about themselves, about their performance. And especially in today's football, you've got players who are pretty much brands in their own right. So they've got so many things to think about. And because of the nature of, of football today, once you, you come in, the preparation is, is meticulous. Uh, everything is, is mapped out to the nth degree. Uh, then the, the training session begins, uh, the focus of the training. Then afterwards, you have that, that kind of cool down. Then you might have some media work to do. And it's almost like a, there's a, a, a structure in place that goes right the way through that. I don't really get the sense that there is that opportunity to really speak to anybody, you know, about your your emotions. It's quite superficial and not in an unpleasant way, but it's just the nature of those environments, things, things it feels like that opportunity would never really take place. And, and ironically, I would suggest that it, the culture of certainly the overseas players, so, you know, the Spanish players and the French players and the German players, I feel that they'd actually be more open to having those conversations um, than, than, the, than the British players. But I think it's also, that's quite a sweeping statement because individually everyone's different. But I, w- I would say that it's more the nature of, of the environment and, and how driven it is and how goal-orientated it is that you don't really get those moments. You know, I mean, when I was playing, obviously you had players that were, we would just share a coach together. We would share, you know, it was like twin rooms. So you were with somebody you know, in, in close proximity and you, you pretty much stayed those uh, room partners for throughout the season. So you really got to know people, you know, and that depth. Today, I would imagine that players have individual rooms, their own space. And, and so I think it, it, it's quite different. So I don't so much feel that although the culture is changing and it has changed, I just think that the opportunity to, to, to speak to, to colleagues around really personal situations will only take place if, say, that, that person makes a real effort to speak to you outside of the football club. So when the Spanish players first come over, the Argentinian players, the Brazilian players, uh, the African players, then there might be opportunities to speak more because they might um, meet up away from the football club and speak more. And, and then the opportunity over time. But there's also that, that, that trust which you need to build um, with someone to be able to truly open up and that itself takes time which you may not have because of those superficial relationships whereas Joanne and I are able to speak at length in our own space in our own time and she gave me the silence and the time the freedom to be able to speak so I think it's more a case of the circumstances rather than the nature of what you've uh, of the question not that you've forgetting asked. the professional staff that that football clubs don't have, that have now that didn't have then. I mean, there was nobody for you to open up to, was there? No psychologists, no counsellors. You're on your own. That's right, and and that's where again, if if a player was having a really difficult time, it would probably be his agent he might speak to first or the physiotherapist if it was a one-to-one or even the club doctor and they might be signposted he might be happy for that to take place but other circumstances there are some individuals that are very very private and there is that 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 sense that they're showing a weakness or a chink in their armor and so there's a little bit of that when i played there was a lot more of that and 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 you didn't want to speak to players because you didn't know them that well and thought well actually do they really want to listen to me to me have they got the time and have they got the skill sets to be able to interpret it in the right way so you felt like you didn't want to speak to people because you didn't really feel that you're going to be heard so it's okay to listen to someone to respond but to listen to understand is a different thing 
I think all those things combined is probably a reason why back in, in those days it, it, there was a culture, but there was also on an individual basis, you had to really get to know somebody and, and you never really did. Can I ask as well, specifically, I suppose, I mean, you say that, you know, the culture has changed, which I think is, is probably a fair assessment. When you were playing, you, you write in the book that, um, or you recall a situation with Stan Collimore when he was diagnosed with depression at Aston Villa, that his, his manager responded to that with cynicism saying, what's he got to be depressed about? And so I wondered, like, in your day of playing, do you find that in some ways a football club might maintain that sort of culture in part because the people who end up in senior coaching roles within the club will tend generally to have come from football and will have learnt the rules of the environment from their coaches and, you know, as far back as, as you can go, which is why maybe it's a, a difficult sort of uh, a thing to break. Yeah, and, and, and I think at the same time, in no disrespect to any anyone who who um, has gone into into coaching and, and actually may have a different thought process, but at the time, you know, there was the things that, that were that, that were in your kind of um, your ream of responsibility might be just around the football and the motivation and the driving somebody. And, you, and, and and it's right that you do have, you know, certain coaches, certain staff members that would have a more sensitive uh, nature and, and might just recognise with people skills, they might recognise those those signs of non-verbal communication. But as I'm sure, you know, people are aware today is that to, to be that, that coach or that individual that's going to be happy to speak about those things at that time involved change. And with change comes fear. And I just feel that you had to be a really, really strong character to stand up and be able to say in front of a group of men back in those days that if anyone has got any emotional issues, any fears, any confidence issues, then by all means speak to me and we can talk through it. I will help you. And it's not a sign of weakness to talk about that. It's actually a sign of strength. At that time, there was nobody with the, with the not only the the skills and the knowledge, but it, it's how it reflected upon them as well. So I think there was almost like you say there was a party line which everybody adhered to, which just meant that people in 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 that sense were never were never heard, and and so you just to get along, you go along as the as the saying goes, and and I think that's exactly where the coaches were at back in those days. Paul, when I um. When a career ends, what is the the overriding emotion? Is it a um, is it a, a regret at what life could have been or what you could have achieved on the pitch? Is it a sort of is it more of an anger at the um, at the people who may have been able to to make a difference or may have um, changed the trajectory with a different diagnosis, or is it a um, or is it a fear of what life's going to be like without football? Because your your childhood is, was consumed by football. There was never really any sense that you were going to do anything else, and you would have you know uh, played for England and had this career, and, and that would have been that. So is it is it a combination of all those three, or was it one of those amongst the others that was sort of the um, had the sort of the overriding effect on you? Um, I think I think it's a combination of all those things, really, and and uh, I think it, again it's all in in context. I mean. Uh, from, the, from the, the start of it, there was the the physical uh, ramifications of, of having to retire, being left with having to have a, my legs straightened. Uh, so there was a, a physical um, result of, of all of the, the attempts to try and get fit and, and of failed surgery. Um, yeah, there was the, the worry of what am I going to do next because uh, I was conditioned uh, institutionalised into the game. So I didn't know anything else. 
There was the fear of having to go out into the outside world, into the real world, and, and to not have any real skill sets or any idea of what direction I was going to go in. There was the financial implications of, of where do I go next? And, you know, there was, a, there was a, I had a, you know, a mortgage to pay and I had um, the potential of a testimonial, but no guarantees that anything would come of that. And, and also there was the, the identity piece. Uh, where well, if I wasn't a footballer, who was I? I suddenly became a, a, a knee joint. So even when anyone spoke to me, the first thing they asked was not how are you, Paul? It was how was your knee? And and and, and I, I would try and pacify them and try to make them feel good about speaking to me. But inside every conversation I had, it just made me sink deeper and deeper into uh, this uh, emotional abyss that I was falling into. So it was all those things and probably more besides. And I come back to it. I didn't know anything else. I didn't know anybody else. I had no one to turn to, no one to speak with. And, and it was a, it was a disgrace really to leave a young, a young man high and dry like that. And, and, um, I suppose now and again, I mean, when you have depression, which is something that I didn't know I, I had depression. I was, it was sunk so low that, um, it never, never truly leaves you. It, it, it's an illness which you can manage and you can cope with, but the scars uh, are there. And although you can't see them, you know, it, it takes different stages in your life that can, can bring those, it, those emotions back to the fore. And I do have, I have had dips and I do struggle now and again. And, and, and those emotions come right out. They're very fresh. The resentment, the anger, the frustration, the sadness, and the longing of what might have been. All those things can come out at different stages. And luckily, with the relationship that I have with my wife and with my family, means that if I am having a, a bad time, I can speak about it. And even my employers have been absolutely tremendous in how to give me that space and time and, and help. So I'm fortunate in some respects but it's taken all those dark times and all those experiences to make me realize that when those things are, are, are coming to a head and, and basically how to deal with them. But what I would add to that as well, Paul probably wouldn't mention himself, is that he's he's never, ever, despite everything he's gone through, shown any bitterness at all. And I think that kind of comes through the book as well. Um, not one shade of bitterness. As he says, he's, he has longing, he has regrets, but never ever has he shown any bitterness and I just respect him so much for that. That's actually going to be my, my next question because Paul comes across as very self-effacing in the book. Um, and I think it's very difficult for someone like me to put, your, put myself in, in your position, Paul. But if I was surrounded by fans who came up to me and they know, they, they know you presumably as Paul Lake Manchester City player and, as you said before, the knee joint um, I think I would really struggle to keep my sense of humour and to, to sort of to remain positive. But you do always come out like that in the book. I think, yeah, I think humour has been a, a defensive mechanism for me, really. And I suppose sometimes that, that can be a mask that you can wear. And, and I did have to do that. But again, uh, you come back to it, you have to try and think of it from somebody else's sense of reference. It's a combination of not really knowing what, you, what you've been through or what you're going through. And there their attempts at, at humour and at, at just mentioning about your knee or whatever are just ways to, in their own way, say, I'm really sorry for what you've been through and, and uh, I hope you're okay. So if you think of it in those terms, then you can't really be hard on anybody. And, and there have been people that have made some jibes and jokes. And again, it comes from a, um, 
uh, a point of ignorance, really. And it, it, it's it's their lookout that they're they're sadly coming from that position, which is not a healthy position, and it surely isn't something that they would look back on as think they would. Uh, it's a it's a place that maybe they would want to come from. But so I I, I always try to think of it in, in in terms of the individual, and even to take make the effort to come over to you and say how are you and how is your knee. I think that that shows. That, that that someone in their own way is is showing some um, you know some sympathy or and and at times empathy, but that, that, that they do care. So I'd always try and deal with it in a certain way, and even be self um, uh, sort of I was going to say self deprecating to, to 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 some degree to try and make them feel better. You know, and and but that that was difficult because I, I kept doing that and kept doing that. But there came a point where, you know, I, I actually felt that I had not in my stomach because I was doing that all of the time. But again, so a lot of the, the humour that I, I used was a was a, a way of, of of almost having to deal with the situation. And as you mentioned before, a lot of the effort involved in trying to 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 to, to keep those emotions at bay was was was. Um, was it was exhausting and yeah. and and so i would i would come home sometimes uh, and and literally just lie on the bed and just fall to sleep and 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 it would be like that so it was a case of over time just trying to find different mechanisms that you would use to try and get through a day or get through a situation and and i found that 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 way worked for me but only up to a point can i say i mean listening to both of you talk i think it's it's such a fascinating story and it's clear that the relationship that you have is is a, a wonderful thing as well the ability to be able to talk to people uh, talk to each other in a free sense in the way that you do and and when you put it in those terms it really is um it really is very simple to to look at other people or people that you know or people that you've met and and realize how difficult it can be for for many people to even just have a very simple conversation with their partner what advice, and I appreciate this is not an easy question to answer, but given your experience of, of your relationship, what advice could you give to people who are finding life difficult and maybe aren't or are finding it difficult to share at home or in their intimate relationships? How do you get over the hump of initially doing that? And it's a trust thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 I suppose when you when you share someone's difficulties, and and you, you are consistent with that, uh, I think that that because when you when you when you show your your most vulnerable side, uh, that's that's when you get a real sense of the depth of a relationship, and and sometimes it can be quite frightening for the partner as well as for the individual because. They might not have dealt with it before, might not know what to say, might be fearful of saying the wrong thing. So I think it's it's that conversation that you have is that, first of all, it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to be honest and say, look, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to be, but uh, I'll, I'll do my very, very best. And I think that's that's a starting point. And you still get things wrong. And we we still had arguments. We still had fallouts. Oh, it was wrong. It was then you know that, that's that's normal life. And 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 I suppose in the scheme of things for us, it's it's recognizing that you know you can have you can have a a, a discussion and you can have a heated debate and you, and you can fall out over something. But it's it's recognizing that. In those moments, it, it, it's it's all about the moment and the and the subject matter. 
it's when you you harbour those things and then you keep you keep returning to 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 those emotions around other aspects. You can follow over. I mean, you know, in, as as an example, you know, we might drop a pot in the in the garden. It's Joe's favourite pot, and uh, <laughs> there's a few expletives that are coming in my direction, and rightly so. But then, if I've parked the car in the wrong place, and, and and or I've not opened the car door, and it's pouring down outside. That anger shouldn't reflect on the on the pot that I dropped four weeks ago. You know, it's all around putting it into context. And I think what happens is our subconscious mind takes over and those emotions are, are, are there, they're fresh and they're raw. So once you know yourself and you know what drives you, and, and then Joanne knows what my drivers are and I know what her drivers are, I know what her, her triggers are as well. And I think once you get to know each other properly and, and, you, and you show yourself your most vulnerable moments, and, and that doesn't need to be alcohol-fueled or drug-fueled, mm-hmm. it's just being yourself. And I think that's the key is if you bear, if you bear yourself and you just you know, be absolutely honest about this is who I am, and, and, and you know, warts and all, you know, these, are, these are my drivers, these are my flaws, and you just be... be if you're able to truly be yourself, you can be at peace. And I think that is the key to a, a, a really, really healthy relationship is you see each other at, your best, at the best and you see each other at the absolute, absolute worst. And that's absolutely fine because that's life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the process of writing the, the book in itself has, has helped us as, as a couple, there's no doubt about it, and has given me that depth of knowledge about depression that I did not have before we embarked upon it. And, you know, as, a, as a Paul has freely admitted himself, he has dips. And when he does have dips, it's very easy for the partner, me, to feel a little helpless. Not as Paul said, not sure what to do, not sure what to say. But um, it's just it's just being there, isn't it, Paul? Mm-hmm. It's just being there, it's being there to listen, it's being there to offer whatever support you can. And to understand it's not personal. Because sometimes it feels that way. You think, my goodness, have I done something wrong? Should I be doing more? Is he is he feeling down because of something I've said, I've done, the way I am? And it's not. You know, it's an illness, as Paul said. It's an illness. And I think over the years, we've, um, we've really sort of started to deal with it a lot better, haven't we? I think also just let you know that, you know, I understand Joe's drivers and Joe's triggers. I don't know when to speak to her, when to, when to be quiet and, and when to duck as well. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, it, it's about being being honest. But, but again, you know, I think the, the book, like you said, you made a really, really uh, insightful um, uh, discovery when you mentioned the, the idea that, that the book has enabled us to, to, to speak in those depths and to really know each other. And I think you're absolutely right. It has been, we, we have been quite fortunate. It sounds, you know, uh, ironic that despite the fact that we're talking about my my lowest point, it did give us the opportunity, that that shared experience. And, and that definitely, you know, brought us together and it definitely enabled Joe to to understand me in a, in a, in a, a far greater detail, especially in terms of, of the depressiveness of uh, uh, the, the illness that it actually is. We've been trying to do this without um, looting from the book and discouraging people from read it from reading it because ideally we'd like to kind of um, for younger people who who sort of missed it first time around we'd like to point them in its, in its direction. People who have read it will understand why I'm asking this. But um, Peter Swales has been dead for 24 years now. Um, what I mean, this is really to both of you as well. How do you feel about him today? It's funny, actually, you should mention that because we were only talking about this a few days ago and your perceptions have changed slightly because 
I mentioned before, you know, Paul doesn't really um, uh, have much bitterness about the, the whole situation. But if anybody comes out worse in the book, it probably is Peter Swales because of the way Paul perceived the way he dealt with him at the time. But recently, Paul's kind of been reflecting about this and has realised that perhaps he was a little unfair in the way that he judged him. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's born out of, um, again, just what I've said, frame of reference of walking a mile in someone's shoes, you get a sense of, you know, why they react the way they do. And I, I suppose I was very judgmental and maybe a lot of that, that hurt I directed at him because, you know, I, I, I was made to feel like, uh, and I use that expression again in, in speaking about it um, in the book, I was like a piece of meat hung up in an abattoir, you know, made me feel like I was suddenly invisible. And I've been in city since I was, you know, a very young boy and, and a city fan and all my dreams, aspirations, you know, were being just, uh, were just ebbing away as the days went by. And for this, this, this guy to not only treat me the way that he, he, he was, but you know, the fact that, um, you know, he even um, challenged me uh, about um, how I was feeling. Uh, I believe that, uh, that this, this man was, was treating me the way that, that he was and, and making me feel so desperate about my situation and, and, and being so hurtful and, and just dismissive. You know, I, I was almost swatted away at times, you know, and, and it, it just it just left me feeling uh, utterly rejected. And so I kind of built up all of this this um, frustration and, the, and all these emotions. I, I suppose I did I did target in his direction. But but again, I, I, as time's gone by, um, I, I'm still not a huge fan because I, I saw how he, he spoke to other people. Um, but but I also come to I would have to say that he did love Manchester City and he, he did love the club and he thought he was doing things in the right way for the right reasons. So you know, as twenty four years later, um, you know, I, I, I we, did, we, did, we did paint him as a bit of a villain in the book. Well, but. yeah, yeah, and and um, and and that's. You can only go off, you know, you treat people in life how you want to be treated was always my mantra and treating me in such a way. Um, I mean, I, I signed a, I signed a five-year contract for City for, for, by comparison for, in footballing terms, for, for, for peanuts really. But it was, it was that commitment that it was my team and, and I didn't want to sign for anybody else and that I had to be prized away. And, and I'd committed to City in, 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 in good faith and committed my life. I mean, you know, when I, I, I made my debut on, on a YTS scheme, I was on £26.50 a week when I, when, I, when I played my first game for the first team. You know, and, and you know, all these things are, are ignored because it wasn't about the money, it was about playing for my team. And I was prepared to do anything. I wore, I wore every shirt for the team. And I even came back from injury when I was 75% fit. I exposed myself in front of thousands of people and didn't play particularly well. And, and, and uh, you know, I had to, you know, undertake a, a backlash from people and, and did all those things. I wasn't seeing myself as a martyr, but these are the things that I did. And, and then to be treated in the next breath because I was injured playing for City, you know, in, in such a way that I just, I just couldn't understand why someone would treat me so abysmally when I was, I was your captain, you know, three months ago, and all of a sudden now, I'm this forgotten uh, man who's, who's, you know, just just uh, a spare part, and 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 so, 
when you speak about Peter Swales, it, it still I still have mixed emotions because I I felt that he was the grown up, he was the adult, and he should have known better. But I also believe that football has a strange way of bringing out certain emotions in people, and and uh, over time, I just maybe regret that I spoke about him in such a way that may have offended his family because I wouldn't have wanted that. See, I I don't I don't think you guys did. I mean, I I would contest that you paint him as a, a villain. I I think actually. Um, I have a few favorite bits of the book, but one of them is your confrontation with him, which is it's powerful and I, you, it's wonderfully well written. So you get a real sense of your anger, but I think it's also quite dignified. Um, so it, I, I don't think I don't think you've done him up, or, or I, I don't think it's, it, it, it doesn't come across unfair. Is what I'm trying to say. Um, one of the last things I want to touch on, though, is um, you sometime after your retirement. Um, I can't. I, Forgive me, I, I can't remember which year it is. You've um, you're at a Simple Minds concert, um, and Jim Kerr starting up the opening chords of Alive and Kicking, which um, for the younger people listening um, was used on the uh, the very first Premier League advert. Which don't look up because it has not it's not aged very well at all. Um, but Paul, you, you describe having a panic attack as a result of that. Um, now, in my mind, those two things are very logical because they're so associated with each other and, you know, with, with the trauma that you've experienced. But what was that process like? And, and also, is this, do you still have these trigger points? Do you still have to, to kind of, um, to avoid these landmines in, in everyday life? Um, I think I've, I've, I've managed that over time, but it, it, it's funny, I was, I was, um, it, I went to this, the, to a concert, this concert with a friend of mine just for, for reasons of nostalgia. And it didn't even enter my head about that particular song. And, and it, it com- completely caught me off guard. And, and it was, it was these emotions that I'd, that I'd, I'd not felt in, in quite some time. And, and I was in quite a good place at the time and just having a chilled out night, you know, uh, couple of beers with a friend reminiscing on on how this person's aged and he still dances the way that he used to dance and all those things and then this song came out and it it just completely floored me and it also frightened me because I felt like I I couldn't breathe and I knew what was happening and I had to just get out of there and I couldn't even explain to my friend what was taking place but I think since time and when you recognize what your triggers are, you're able to, to prepare yourself and, and manage those things. So, uh, you know, since that time, if, if that song comes on in the car... You will turn it off. I will turn it off, <laughs> you know, but then I've managed it, I've coped with it. But, um, you know, there are going to be circumstances. Ironically, I was having my, my hair butchered uh, a, few, a, few, a few years ago and that song came on, I could feel my heart racing. And, and he had a pair of scissors in the hand, so I had to literally, you know, and I just said, oh, it's a terrible song, this. And he said, oh, really, I'll turn it over, and he did. And it was just one of those just ways of just managing it. But it, it, you're absolutely right. The, the association with, with, with certain moments in your life can be triggered by, by a song, by a, an expression, by even like music on an advert or something. But, you know, it's something that Joe in particular you know, can can recognise it. And again, the way that she, she she's wrote certain aspects of the book so beautifully has, has enabled me to to almost to put into the words how I'm how I'm feeling. But music, interestingly, you mentioned the music side of things. Music was a huge thread in the book as well. I mean, as, as you know, it's not just about football. We wanted it to be a lot more uh, about music, about Manchester Manchester as a place. And uh, music was a huge thread through the book, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, from obviously, you were lucky enough to go to the Hacienda in its uh, heyday. 
That's right. Yeah, um, your Oasis second ever and, gig. And you, and all you that, kind yeah. of, in the, you know, you mentioned that you realised that you were in the throes of depression when you lost that ability to listen to music. That's right, and 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 didn't for that whole time, and uh, even in therapy, I, you know, asking that question and and not being able to. Uh, recognize the association which he did and you and you have done and I have since realized but at the time you know I, I didn't connect but it was such a huge part of my life was going to going to, to gigs and listening to music yeah, you know it was absolutely everything for me it was my other passion apart from football so to to, to the, the guilt associated with with feeling happy because I mean it wasn't just the fact that I'd lost the career and it's something else that I didn't mention before was the social aspect of it in terms of my family were not particularly wealthy family and, and the sacrifices that they made were such that I, I felt like I wanted to to look after them all and 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 you know uh, pay off their mortgages and, and give them nice things and nice holidays like it was my responsibility and since that time recognized that my family have come to me and said we never expected that from you we just wanted you to be happy but you know all those things were were caught up in in, at times in that song so that was a really yeah. trigger it was a trigger for me and so turning it off was not only because I was I felt like I was going to have a panic attack or to feel this anxiety recognising it as a trigger and realising that the best way to, to deal with it was to just switch it off was to avoid it and it's something that again is 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 a, a recognition that we try to portray in the book but I'm sure people, you know, in society, never mind in football, will, will have those moments and uh, and not be able to recognise that association. One more question, and um, it's a selfish one because I've always wanted to know the answer. Um, what's your best position, Paul? I, I suppose when I've when I've spoken to lots of fans as well about this, and they they'd all saw, they all saw me as a as a kind of a number eight, a, a box to box midfield player. I actually felt that as a centre half. You know, someone that, that could uh, attack the football was okay in the air, but I felt like because I'd, I'd experienced different positions during the course of the three seasons that I played, that I was able to make good decisions and, and, and be able to respect, you know, when, when to pass a ball, you know, how to pass the ball, you know, what communication to pass on, when to step in, when to step back. You know when to allow a ball to win because you just can't win that ball. You know when to make the tackle, when to show somebody inside or outside, or when to double up, when to drop. All these things were something that I, I used in playing centre half. So I felt like as a modern day centre half, I mean certainly in Pep Guardiola's team would be a, would be a dream come true. But I felt that that's the kind of player that I was. It comes like a a football in centre half. So really, in the scheme of things. As much as I enjoyed going forward and, and attacking and, and, and assists and, and, and really getting involved in games, I felt like I was most comfortable uh, and probably my strongest position would have been as Howard Kendall rest is so identified, and that was as a centre half. Joe, did you um, we did you see his debut as a fan? Uh, I, oh, I'm one of these people that I'm, I'm not as good as Paul is about remembering dates it and does, games and that sort of thing. But time, I was a season ticket holder from the age of seven till 18. So I will have done. I absolutely will have done. It was that good. That you yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I will have done. And, you know, he was he was the most incredible player. I mean, and, and the, the, the fantastic thing about City's team at the time, the, the mid to late 80s, was the um, amount of, of local homegrown lads that there were in the team. And obviously Paul was one of them in, in the likes of Ian Brightwell, Steve Redmond, Andy Hinchcliffe, 
it was just a wonderful team to watch. But obviously, I was watching from the main stand, absolutely no clue that one day I'd be marrying this person and, and writing his memoir. Uh, Joe, I have one question for you before we before we go. Although two, I suppose, actually. The, the first is, are you writing anything else at the moment? And the second is, is Paul going to write your book? Ha! <laughs> okay. Um, well, the lovely thing about writing our book um, was it, it kick-started my career as a ghostwriter, really, because as I mentioned before, I'd never, ever tackled a book before. I'd done plenty of other um, writing-related things, but never a book. So uh, once I did Paul's book, I worked with Howard Webb, World Cup referee on his memoir, which was absolutely wonderful. I loved working with Howard. Fantastic guy. Great story to tell. Uh, and then I worked with Paul's former teammate, David White, on his book. Um, and my most recent project was with uh, former deputy, party, uh, deputy leader of the Labour Party, Tom Watson. He wrote a book about his, his, his weight loss journey. So that's the most recent one I've done. And there are a couple of things I'm working on at the moment, but... Um, the COVID uh, crisis has kind of uh, stemmed things a little bit at the moment. So I'm hoping to be back at my laptop sooner rather than later. And would he write my memoir? Um, his writing skills have really improved, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm more the raconteur than the writer, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I think, no, I think I've, I've, yeah, there's a few stories I could tell working at Man United, Man City back in the day. So maybe I'll write my own. Do you know what? Well, there's there's a specific set of um, of skills I think that go into ghostwriting, and I just wanted to ask you. Obviously, your experience uh, ghostwriting with Paul will have been very intimate in a way that presumably your experience of writing with Tom Watson just wasn't. What's the what's the kind of difference in that process there, and and how difficult was it to make the jump from from something which is probably very unique uh, to, to to regular ghostwriting? Yeah, it was it's a difficult one really because as you say that the experience with uh, working working alongside my husband is probably never going to be replicated again. But as a ghostwriter, I think you know it's my job to paint a picture with words almost to to show respect to somebody's story by chronicling their life as best you can. And I think more importantly, to capture their voice. You know, it's, it's ironic. Everybody I've worked with happens to be male. I'd love to work with a female. But, you know, it's been, it's, I suppose it is a skill for, you know, a 40-something-year-old woman to try and capture the voice of a former World Cup referee. And, and I hope I did that okay. So, so I would say that's probably the, um, the, the yeah, the main skills that I've probably kind of uh, helped my career so far to date. But I always say, I think... Paul's book will probably the best, be the best thing I ever do, but I don't think that's probably a surprise for me to say that because it was such a, um, uh, a joy to work with him and it was an absolute privilege and a, and a pleasure to help tell, tell his story. It's the debut album thing, isn't it? It is the debut album thing, <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty proud of what I've done after that as well, as I said, but I'd love to work with a female. I'd really love to. I've got a few in my sights, but I'd love to work with a female, so we'll see how things go. Mm. Well, Paul and Joe, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's thank been a you. pleasure. Um, and uh, the book that we've been referencing, of course, is uh, Paul Lake, I'm Not Really Here, available online to purchase still now. Uh, 10 years after publication, is it? Well, it is, yeah. It's 10 years. I think it's 10 years next year. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to have a little celebration, won't we? We shall. Right. Well, thanks very much, guys. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.